Always good to get a little bit of context, a little bit of background. So let me give you, let me give you two minutes of background. Ezekiel lived at a very difficult time, a very challenging time in terms of Israel's history. It's a time of great political upheaval in the world. Internationally, things were just kind of rapidly changing. And eventually, Ezekiel is going to be taken into captivity in Babylon with the rest of the nation of Judah. Now, as we saw last week and as we've studied many times, the northern ten tribes, Israel, were taken into captivity first by Assyria. Assyria then started to get overtaken by Babylon. And Babylon ended up carrying the southern two tribes, Judah, into captivity. And then after Babylon came to power, Persia came along with Cyrus, and they conquered Babylon, and then they started to control the world. So there's a lot going on. And in the middle of this, Israel and Judah, or if we can combine them into one nation, Israel, is, is devastated. Jerusalem's destroyed. The walls are torn down. The temple is burned. Uh, the, this, the nation or nations are in complete and utter chaos. There's basically nothing left, and nothing really ends up being restored till hundreds of years later. But this is a time of great turmoil and great sadness. And as the Jews are dispersed into other cultures, as they're taken into captivity, and the nation is divided even further, God sends prophets both in advance and then while they're in captivity. And then after uh, those prophets end, God goes silent. And Israel and Judah then become nations that are kind of, kind of on their own, kind of trying to figure out. And there's not a great cry for the Lord. There's not a hunger for the Lord. If anything, they become more disaffected. Now, the sole cause for God bringing this judgment against his people, the sole reason why he allows this and, and causes this to happen was that they had rebelled against the Lord and they had hardened their hearts and they had followed false gods. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, other prophets all bring this word. They, they first come with a strong warning to the people in advance. And then when the people are taken away, they, they as part of the remnant, go and remind the people, this is why you're scattered. But Ezekiel's message is a little bit different because as he starts to minister, and this is really in the last 16 chapters of this book, he starts to bring a message of hope to the people. Even as they're scattered, even as they're dispersed, even as they're in slavery in other cultures, he brings a message of hope. He says, someday God is going to revive you, and someday God is going to restore you, and you're going to be a redeemed people, and God's going to bless you, make you his kingdom on earth. But it's down the road. It's not happening now. Part of it is because you just are stubborn. You just will not turn your hearts to the Lord. And part of it is that God's got to execute this judgment and this discipline on you so you'll end up getting to that place because with all that he's done so far, you haven't changed. Now, when we look at the text, and we're just going to read a couple verses this morning, the Lord makes it abundantly clear in the text that his work down the road, that his restoration and, and, and bringing them back into the land and blessing them is, is not going to be because they deserve it. And it's not going to be because they have some great spiritual awakening because they don't. Instead, 
he says this in verse 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Just to make sure, uh, just as a sidebar, that, that they understand and don't say, well, you are really doing it for us. He reminds them, look, you've profaned me among the nations. Then he repeats it in verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Therefore, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now, God, we know the promises of God, and we know that God is gracious. We just talked about it. But, but God isn't going to restore Israel at this point or, or down the road, even because he wants to help them. He says, I'm going to restore you because I want the world to know that I am the Lord. Now, there are times in history, and, and we usually get a little nervous talking about them because we're so, uh, so gun-shy, we're so intimidated by the fact that the world keeps saying, God can't ever execute judgment. That, that God has to be all-loving, all-tolerant, all-merciful, and God is loving and He's merciful, but, but, but that can be the only message. There can be nothing in Scripture that God says that God ever executes any form of judgment. And culture has become so uh, persistent about this and so insistent about this that, that anything that comes out of the Word, anything that comes out of the church, better be soft. Because if God is a judge, if, if God disciplines, if God holds people accountable for sin, we will not consider Him. How many know that's true this morning? So God says here, there are times in history where I just execute what I execute because I'm going to prove I'm God. And man is so arrogant and man is so uh, intent on being the one that everybody needs to answer to, including God. But God says, that's not how it works. So sometimes God does things that prove I'm God. Sometimes he allows a natural disaster or causes a natural disaster to remind us you have no power. You have no authority. I'm the creator. I'm the one that controls those things. Other times he allows political or religious crisis to awaken people to the fallacy of false religions and the need for Jesus Christ, which you would think we would be so much more aware of after the week that we've had and all the events that happened in France. But, but I was struck last night as I was thinking through this, there still seems to be a spiritual dullness and still seems to be a naivete about what's going on. And you hold a couple rallies and then it dies down and we wait for the next crisis. There's not an outcry. There's not a pushback. It, it's just kind of, well, I don't know what we can do. And then the Lord allows suffering sometimes or he uses suffering to show the wicked heart of man and the injustice of man's action and man's heart I don't know if you saw the news about the thousands of people that were slaughtered in Nigeria by Boko Haram. They just went through the village and just started executing people, mostly women and children and the elderly because they couldn't run fast enough. 2,000 plus, they said, you've never seen anything like it. We're going to pray for Nigeria Thursday night at prayer meeting. How could this be? Well, God does allow these things. 
We can't say he doesn't, because if he doesn't, then he's not God. So he does allow these things. Why? Doesn't that seem unfair? Doesn't it seem like God's not loving if he does? No, he's proving I'm God. And you are resistant, and you are sinful mankind. You won't have anything to do with me. So I'm going to show you I'm God. Now after this week, we have to wonder when God will again intervene with something to prove that he's God. Or, or I even wondered, maybe it won't happen. Maybe God's just preparing and saying, I'm coming back. I'm tired of trying to convince people. I'm trying, tired of trying, and, and I'm speaking my own words here. I, I, I'm done. Man has become too resistant. It, it, it's done. It's time. Jesus, go back. Get your people. What is God doing? Why is God allowing this? Well, he wants to prove he's God and he wants to draw us back to himself. So what we do know from this text, though, and we're going to see in just a minute, is that God isn't just the God of judgment. In fact, he, he uses his judgment very sparingly because the text proves to us that the Lord is gracious and long-suffering. Have you ever thought about how long it takes God to actually put judgment on. He's not quick. He waits. He watches. The Bible says he is slow to anger and rich in love. God is not quick to execute judgment, even though he has every right to execute judgment. He's slow to anger and he's rich in love and he proves that to you and me every day. How many know that's true? Aren't, aren't you so glad that God is gracious and long-suffering? Because if he wasn't with me, I would be toast. He's gracious and he's patient and he's slow to anger and he's rich in love and he keeps pouring it out and we keep abusing it and he keeps pouring it out saying, get an idea of who I am. Get an idea of what I'm doing. He's willing to restore and redeem Israel even though they have offended him. Why? Because that's what he does. It's who he is. It's how he acts even toward those of us, all of us, who are sinners. I love the line from that old hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. In other words, the worst sinner, and I'm chief among them, the worst sinner, the worst offender, the one who is, who is turned against God the most, God says the moment you ask for forgiveness, you are forgiven forever, and it is clean. God is rich in mercy, and he's willing to restore Israel. He's willing to redeem them. He's willing to pull them back out of their sin and bless them, just as he's willing and has done the same thing for you and me through Jesus Christ. Now, by doing that work of forgiveness and redemption, he's done for us exactly what he describes here in chapter 36 and verse 25. So let's read a couple more verses. Start in verse, I think we left off at 23, right? Let's start in verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Speaking specifically to Israel there, this is not, verse 24 is not a promise to us because we don't have a land to go into. This is a specific promise to Israel, 
But what he says in verse 25 and 26 has application to us, okay? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, verse 25 is the one that we're going to key on in a minute. But, but hear what God is saying because what he says to Israel echoes everything that we see at the table, echoes everything that we see Christ doing, and echoes 1 John 1, 9. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and tell the rest with me, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Clean, that's what Christ did. Christ made us clean. Not, not just better, not the car wash that gets the snow off, but you drive out after spending $11 and there's still residual, right? Not that. It's, there's not still smudges on our spirit. There, there's not still a, a record that there was some sin there. God says, when I wash you, I wash you clean. There's zero record. I don't remember anymore that you ever sinned against me. So when we confess and we trust in Christ, God says it's removed. Now, that is either completely true or it is a complete lie. There is zero middle ground. Either Jesus did exactly what he said he did, and we take it by faith that he is the only way of salvation who cleanses us when we believe, or this is all a great big joke, and we should go home and watch the pregame. But there's no, there's no gray area. It's either Christ is the only Savior, or he's not. So if Christ is the only Savior, then what he's done is magnificent beyond belief. He has cleansed us from all our sin. And one of the things that I think we, we forget, and, and I don't mean that uh, rudely, is, is just how completely fallen we are. Just how utterly helpless we were. It, it's easy to, 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 to not realize this deeply if you're like me. You, you've, you've been saved a long time, or you grew up in church, or, 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 or you don't have some kind of dramatic testimony where you were saved out of a real life of sin and rebellion, and, and, and God radically transformed you. Now, I, I'm jealous of that sometimes because you really understand the measure of grace. And it's easy in our American culture, which is still in our minds kind of religious and kind of sanitized from the understanding of depravity. We don't have Boko Haram happening every day in our midst. So, so we see the depravity of culture, even our own culture, but, but we don't always realize that before Christ, we were rotten with sin. We were decaying, the Bible says. We were condemned forever. We were spiritually dead. There was zero possibility of life because sin had killed our spirit and there was no way we could resuscitate it on our own. Now, really knowing that, really understanding that, gives us a different view of the miracle that God has cleansed us from sin and redeemed us and declared us a child of God. But here's what's amazing. That's not all that Jesus did. Though it would be certainly more than we could imagine, right? 
that God would cleanse us and forgive us and redeem us. But, but here's the thing, and this is what the text tells us. He didn't just remove the filth and penalty of sin and then leave us in the same condition that we were in, just freshly washed. The text tells us that there are three other parts to the transaction. And this is supported all throughout the New Testament. I'll give you some reference passages that you can look at and study this week. But, but the text here says that God has done three things. Not only has he removed sin, not only has he cleansed us, not has he taken away the penalty and, and made us his own, but there are three things that he did as part of that transaction. First, look at it. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. The New Testament cross-reference for this is Romans 8, 1 to 11. Maybe write that down. You can study it if you haven't in a while. Study that this week. Romans 8, 1 to 11. God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Our heart isn't just cleansed, it's changed. It's not just modified, it is made new. The old man is put to death, it's crucified with Christ, and it does not have control over us anymore. And that's important and it's necessary for us because without a new heart and a new spirit, our inclination is going to be to run back to the old man and live the way we've always lived. So God says, within you I will put a new heart and a new spirit. Second, he says, I remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Two passages here, Philippians 2, 1 to 13 and Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Philippians 2, 1 to 13, Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. We're going to develop this particular thought in just a minute, so I won't take a lot of time on it. But, but when we read heart of flesh, usually we kind of go, ooh, that's not a good thing, because flesh usually refers to sin. But it's different here, and I'll explain that in a minute. Third, it says in the text that he puts his spirit within us, he puts his spirit within us so that we will be led to be obedient. And the, the extension of this New Testament is to be like Christ. Cross-reference is John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. God says, I put my spirit... Remember, this is Old Testament. We think, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up till Acts 2, right? No, he says right here, I'm going to put my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is not separate from the Father and Jesus. They are one. How do we understand that? We don't. We're fallible, and we're human, and we're limited in our understanding. But God says, I'm one God with three persons. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, is the Spirit of Father. So he says, I'm going to put my spirit, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you. And his presence and his teaching spurs us to live as the new man. When we're not living as the new man, he convicts us. When we need to live more as the new man, he trains us to walk in righteousness. And he's the security and he's the seal for what Christ has done. Because the enemy is going to keep coming along saying, God doesn't have possession of you and you really need to claim yourself back from God. And I'm telling you, that's a lie. We are the possession of God. We are Christ. We take his name and the spirit is the seal. He's the mark. He's the one that says, this is the security. I'm the proof that you're God's. I'm, I'm the power that, to, that you have to overcome sin. And I'll be the professor to train you to live like Christ. So the spirit is put on us. Now you would think 
that with all that God's done for us, and the understanding of the reality of being transferred from death to life, that we would be eager, that we'd say, great, I have a new heart, I'm ready to live that way, I've got the Spirit helping me, I, I'm so ready to go, sin, you got no more place in my life, I'm tired of you, you drag me down, you take me away from God, I'm going to live in the grace and mercy of God. So, so the question is, why don't we live that like that every moment of every day? And, and to really get to the bottom line, to get to the answer of that, we have to answer three questions very honestly. And I want, I want you to write these down. And I want you to prayerfully deal with them this week because the Lord needs to give us some very clear conviction on whether these are true and how much they're true. Okay, these are going to be hard. Number one, am I really sincere in my faith? Did I pray a prayer at some point and ask God to come into my life, but I haven't really changed? Am I a cultural Christian? Am I a Christian in name, but my life isn't really set apart? I haven't really renounced sin. It's just kind of, I don't know, Paul. I just, I'm a Christian. I come to church. This is a hard question. Am I really sincere in my faith? If we don't love the Lord with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and all our strength, and if our life doesn't show abundant fruit that our heart is completely given to the Lord, it's hard for us to ask, am I sincere in my faith? But listen, even if the answer to that is no, you don't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay that way. This is the work that God has done for us. And today, right now, listen, even if you've been in church all your life, today can be the day of a set-apart life where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I know you prayed that prayer in 1984, but, but your life hasn't matched it. Let me give you a new heart and a new spirit. Question number two, am I really willing to abandon sin and self? Not nuance it, not, not keep one foot in the world, not, not justify it based on my perceived freedom. Those don't indicate a death to self. All they are are, a, are are an attempt to try to justify our right to still live how we want to live. But we've seen abundantly clear this morning that our lives are not our own. They are bought with the price of Christ's blood. That's what that table represents. So here's what God says. Are you ready? Are you willing to permanently renounce sin? Are you ready to starve your flesh? Not allowing sin to reign in your bodies. The Bible says don't allow sin to reign in your bodies. Put off, put off those old sins that you've been dealing with all your life from your youth. You've got to put those off. Am I really sincere about my faith? Am I really willing to abandon sin and self? Number three, am I really ready to change? Having a new heart really doesn't do any good if we're going to neglect it or mistreat it. The Bible constantly connects the heart and the mind. So when it says in James chapter 2, a double-minded man is unstable in all ways, it means that trying to combine the old life and the new life only makes us spiritually unsteady. If you're, if you're trying, and if I'm trying to, to go through life 
and live as a Christian, but still balance in the other part and still have part of that in our life and kind of manage the two, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be reckless and unsteady, and we're never going to be walking the way we should. Now, not only do we have to be aware of that, but we have to abandon ourselves once and for all so we don't remain unstable. Let me give you a story that I found that illustrates this very well. A guy named Robert Robinson was a man in the 18th century, and he got saved under the ministry of one of the great evangelists of all time, George Whitfield. Whitfield was unbelievable. If you've ever uh, re- never read about Whitfield, get a biography. I think I have a couple in my office and read about Whitfield. He used to ride by horseback miles and miles, preach to tens of thousands of people, and people would just repent on the spot. It was such power in his ministry. Finney and Whitfield. Well, Robert Robinson got saved under the ministry of Whitfield. And he even entered into the ministry because he wanted to follow the Lord. But he had a tendency to wander from God. He wrote the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Everybody, how many know? Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You guys know that song? Come Thou Fount's a great hymn. And it was kind of an autobiographical sketch because he knew his heart tended to get out of tune and that caused him to neglect God. And one of my favorite Lines. One of my favorite verses of that hymn, I didn't realize until this week, was an autobiography. He writes, Oh, to great grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. That's why... That line is why God says in verse 27, you need my spirit. You need my spirit to walk in my ways. Because if we don't yield completely to God's spirit, then we're going to still allow sin to influence us and our hearts are going to become hardened again. And that's exactly what happened to Robert Robinson. Later in life, he was on a stagecoach. And he was behaving in a way that that made a fellow passenger think that he didn't know Christ. So she started to share her faith with him. And not knowing who he was, this man who had been saved under the ministry of Whitfield and this man who had written, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, she, she, not knowing who he was, started to quote his own hymn to him and said, These words might help you as they've helped me. And Robinson started to weep. And he said, ma'am, I'm the poor, unhappy man that composed that hymn many years ago. I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. He allowed his heart to be unguarded. He allowed it to get cold and calloused like a stone that God describes. Look at the text to Ezekiel. Charles Spurgeon preached a message 153 years ago that I found this week. I love the internet. I'm sure when Spurgeon was preaching in Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1862, he didn't think some clown in Racine would be studying his words 150 years later. But Spurgeon said in a message about this text, 
that the reason God describes our sinful heart as a stone is because stones have three primary qualities. Number one, they're cold. Even when a stone is heated, it doesn't retain the heat and it returns to its original coldness. What a description for so many people's spiritual condition. They get fired up for a while and then gradually their hearts become cold again until the next spiritual experience. But the heat and passion for the Lord never lasts. Spurgeon preached one day and people in the congregation, a huge congregation in London, were all at the altar weeping. And somebody looked at it and said, what a wonderful thing to see so many people weeping under the truth. And somebody that was standing next to Spurgeon said, but there's a greater wonder than that to see how many leave off weeping as soon as the sermon's over concerning those things which ought to make them weep always and constantly. In other words, all, oh, God, we're so sorry. And then they walk up to the car, and it's like nothing ever happened. That's a stone that's cold. Second, stones are hard. Some stones, like a diamond, can barely be etched by a chisel. And yet a heart that's hardened toward the Lord is even more resistant. The Pharisees knew the law from memory. They had the first, think about this, the first five books of the Bible memorized. They knew the law. They saw and heard Jesus in person. They witnessed him do miracles. They heard teaching from the voice of God himself. And they still crucified him because their hearts were hardened from being filled with pride. What breaks you this morning? What causes you to fall before the Lord? What penetrates your spiritual conscience? What, what grabs your spirit so you say, Lord, I'm worthless without you. I'm so sorry, but I'm so grateful for your grace. What is it that does that? Or is our heart just hardened? Does the truth bounce off? And we kind of say, oh, that was good. That was good. I studied the Bible. I heard a message. heard a song. It was really good. But I don't know. Third, stones are dead. They have no life, no feeling, no heart. There's no blood coursing through them. Even a dog will respond to stimuli. Even a dog will show emotion, but not a stone. The old self is dead to sin. Dead and hard and cold. And you know the problem and the danger of that? When our hearts are in that condition, listen now, with the Holy Spirit help us. When our hearts are in that condition, we get used to it. And the hardness becomes harder, and the coldness becomes colder, and the enemy says, don't worry about it. It's perfectly normal. You said your prayer. You're fine. You don't need to change. Listen, if you've never trusted in Christ... If you've never turned from sin, that's an illusion that you have been sold. And I'm sorry, it's a lie from the devil. And you don't have to live that way because Jesus Christ died and rose again. He took the penalty of your sin and he crucified it and he offers you new life and your heart can be changed forever. Cleansed from sin, out of bondage, living in freedom. Judgment that is said your sins and iniquities I remember no more, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
If you've never trusted Christ, I beg you understand that. I, I beg that the Holy Spirit will, will convict you right now as he convicted me 40 years ago that I am in sin. But I don't have to stay in sin. And if you have trusted Christ, these verses, I, I think these verses may be more for us. Has our heart gotten cold? Has our heart gotten hard? Are, are we running back to our life that was dead? Instead of exalting Christ as Lord, have we put ourselves back on the throne and said, I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I want to make the decisions. I want to satisfy myself. And God, you can have a place, but you don't have the primary place. Look at one more verse. We'll pray. He says, I want to give you a heart of flesh. Now, as we said, in most cases, that's not good. But in this case, it means a heart that is soft and tender toward him, pliable, sensitive to his spirit, ready to be molded in his image, a heart that walks with him. Does that describe your heart? When we were discussing molecules in the car, let me give you the end of the story. Julie said to Matthew, why does the ball, why is the ball deflated? And I was proud of my homeschooled son. He said it's because the molecules got cold. And when the molecules get cold, they slow down and they don't move as much. And me, ever the jokester said, they're probably all huddled under a blanket because they're so cold. But then the Holy Spirit said, listen, Paul, listen, I know it's early and I know you're cold, but listen. The scientific fact leads to a spiritual principle. When molecules cool, they have less kinetic energy and they slow down. It's the same thing that happens when our hearts get cold before the Lord. We slow down spiritually and we become spiritually static and lifeless. We stop growing, we stop, stop serving, we stop striving after the Lord. We just kind of stand still and we huddle with like-minded people and we're spiritually deflated. But when our hearts are warm toward the Lord, full of spiritual fire and passion for Christ, we move toward the Lord and we want to be in His presence and we become tender to the Lord and we start to get sensitive to His Spirit and yielded to His conviction and His leading and we have greater compassion for people and our hearts are moved for people and we see them as Christ sees them and we start to show love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and we minister to people and we show them the grace of God. See, when we're warm physically, our kinetic energy and movement increases. And, and interestingly, what I found out in my research, because I'm lousy at science, is that as the kinetic energy increases, as the movement increases, the molecules change. The molecules don't become the same. And the Lord said to me, Paul, listen now. When you're on fire for me, it changes who you are. You start to move and get active and mature and move toward me. And now you become evidence of the warmth that's there. And your heart and your spirit are like I created you to be. And now you're living proof. You're a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to me. Praise the Lord. What kind of molecule are you today? I know that's the strangest question that will be asked all week. 
But what kind of spiritual molecule describes you? Hot or cold? Living and active or, or lifeless and dull? And we'll say it again. We've said it a million times. There's no middle ground. God despises lukewarm. Are you hot for him? Are are you on fire? Are you passionate? Do you burn for him? Do you say, oh Lord, I want to be like you. Oh Jesus Christ, I want to be like you. Holy Spirit, rain down on me. Come on, invade me now. Take away the sin. I have got to live with everything I've got for you. Or is it kind of, I don't know. Israel knew the Lord. They knew him. God was among them. God gave them his law. He led them with a cloud. He led them into the land. He gave them victory. He gave them kings. He gave them prophets. He came into the temple. They knew God, but they didn't live for God. And that's a huge difference. God wants to give us a new heart and a new spirit a heart of flesh. Have you given yourself completely to him? Are you walking with him? Because when we do, God does amazing work.